to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, June 25th, 2023. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased anywhere and wherever finer books are sold. Peter also has comms at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello, Michael. We are just uh, under one month away from uh, your show at 54 Below, Gary Orbach's Broadway featuring William Michaels, J. Aubrey Jones, and more. So, uh, last 30 days, you have your punch list and you're crunching everybody? Well, I've recently been in touch with the um, uh, with Jerry Orbach's two sons who are going to make special appearances in the show, uh, Chris and Tony Orbach. And we've uh, set up a rehearsal for next week, so that's going to be neat. I can't wait to even just go to the rehearsal <laughs> um, to hear them sing Try to Remember. I'm, I have to remember to bring a lot of tissues. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The official tissue box of 54. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, Michael, you got your way over to City Center to see the Encore's production of The Light in the Piazza. Tell us about this. And did you bring your tissue boxes for that? I should have. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm hearing. I I love, love, love this show and this score. I, I remember... Um, I haven't had much opportunity to meet or speak with Adam Gettle, but I did get to meet him some years ago. And I remember saying to him <laughs> words to the effect of that score is so beautiful that I can hardly believe that a human being wrote it. <laughs> and he really seemed to, uh, to really appreciate that. Uh, I, I do think it's incredibly beautiful. Uh, it, it is, um, Parts of it are, are very complex, and one or two 
there's the one song actually that that uh, begins Act Two that I think is not entirely successful. It's called Ayutami. It's one of the few songs that are in Italian, sung in Italian. Um, but other than that, um, uh, there are moments that are are very uh, complex and not not simple song forms, and uh, they they might be very complicated in terms of the the harmonies and the chord structure and the rhythms. Uh, but I I think there's so much melody overflowing in this score, uh, including the title song, uh, but also uh, Il Mondo Era Vuoto, uh, the Passeggiata song, uh, the opening number, Statues and Stories, uh, the beautiful Love to Me that Fabrizio sings at the end. Uh, I, I think that this is a show to, uh, th- this is a show you can bring someone to or get them the cast recording at least. Um, uh, if they think that Adam Gettle can't write melody, I, I, as I've said, I, I just don't think that's remotely true. Uh, and it's uh, lovely to have this on stage uh, while another of his shows is playing. It is still playing, isn't it? Days of Wine and Roses? Yes. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. Uh, because um, Mr. Gettle is famously not very prolific. Uh, he spends a lot of time on his shows. Uh, and so it's been, well, this is, this is the, the first new one since then, right? He had been working for years on a musicalization of The Princess Bride. But as I think we all know, that fell apart because of problems with the book writer, uh, disagreements with the book writer. Um, so this is it. And uh, I mean, uh, Days of Wine and Roses was was the first new one. But this is the one that, that really converted me to Adam Gettle. And it's a beautiful, beautiful production. Um with Ruthie Ann Miles, um, several people have used the word luminous. Uh, I I um, try to avoid using it because I, I feel like it sometimes it's overused and maybe a little pretentious. But I don't think there's another word for it. <laughs> um, there's so much inner light and inner light to her performance, and um, the way she's able to act subtext uh, on stage is it really superior she does it better than or as well as anyone else that i know and i i guess i you know i'm have limited experience of her so i never really focused on that aspect of her talent so much uh but here it's very very evident and subtext um and things not said uh is a very very large part of light in the piazza so she was a brilliant choice um for the role of margaret johnson even though she is i guess non-traditional casting in the sense that the roles of margaret and her daughter clara were originally written as two white southern women from uh winston-salem north carolina who go to um visit italy in the late 1950s uh but here they are uh, they are asian and uh it's uh it's not dwelled upon and not a single word of the 
script or the lyrics has been changed, as has been mentioned. Uh, but so uh, it was always a fish out of water story and a culture clash story anyway, um, with these two white Southern women uh, in, in Italy uh, and not, not being able to really speak the language. Um, so it's still a culture clash story, but just with um, one of the cultures being swapped out. And um, uh, and as I said, uh, Ruthie was amazing, and and so was this young uh, woman who is a, a currently a freshman at college, Anna Zavelson, who they somehow found to play Clara. She's brilliant, just perfect. Uh, only negative is that maybe she uh, does look a little bit too young. The character is supposed to be twenty six, and that actually. Um, is kind of important to the plot uh as you as it as it unfolds um very important to the plot i would say um but other than that she just was uh, just incredible on stage and and um she got ovations for all of her songs and you could tell uh she participated in the talk back afterwards and you could just tell how much the audience loved her uh so you really 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 are going to be hearing from her many 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 times in the future um the show was was beautifully directed by che yu um in his encore's debut i believe um rob berman who was the uh the resident music director of Encores for many years came back for this one uh, again. Uh, and as he had come back um, uh, previously for, for uh, uh, into the woods. Right. Um, and um, the uh, choreography was by Parker Esse, but the rest of the cast was also um, just fantastic and even though many people are not necessarily the, uh the first people you would have thought of for the roles we had shireen ahmed as franca and andrea burns um stealing the show uh in a few moments as signora nacarelli uh rod cyrus um uh, some young man from juilliard uh really fantastic as giuseppe nacarelli um james d gish um Really, really beautiful performance as Fabrizio, um, who has many, many wonderful moments in the show. Um, Michael Hayden came in uh, oh, to do two scenes, his two scenes as Roy Johnson, Margaret's uh, husband, who's back in Winston-Salem. And um, she he only appears in phone conversations, but he nailed those two scenes, as you might imagine. And finally, um, Ivan Hernandez just perfect as Signor Nacarelli. Um, so uh, I I mean, if you love this show, uh, you've probably already been <laughs> uh, to the Encore's production. If not, it, it well, it's today, but um, depending on what time you hear this podcast, you won't, you'll, you'll miss it. Um, I, I hope um, that many of you have gotten to see and hear it. Uh, I, uh, during the talkbacks, the talkbacks are good at encores, although they sometimes tend to be annoying in the sense that someone always asks two questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> will there be a cast album and will this show move to Broadway? And the stock answer is always, does anybody have $200,000, you know, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, for the cast album? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and that's exactly what happened here with uh, Che Yu, um, 
uh, I'm sorry, uh, um, Clint Ramos, uh, the, the um, producing artistic director, uh, gave those responses. So uh, this is a very special kind of a show. I don't know if you'll be seeing it on Broadway. It, it could happen, I guess, for a, a limited run a la a Parade and Into the Woods, which are the, the, the uh, two most recent encore shows that transferred to Broadway after a, quite some time of that not happening. Um, so we'll see. Uh, but I'm either way, I'm, I'm just glad that I saw it. I do think it's an absolute masterwork um, of the musical theater, and it was very, very special to be there. Okay. So as Michael pointed out, it is running through today. Uh, so depending on when you hear this, may or, you may or may not be able to get to City Center and get tickets, um, but it's great. Light in the Piazza has made its uh, made its presence back in the New York City area in a major production. Um, it's interesting what you say about Adam Gettle. Uh, he spends so much time on projects, and then we've also heard recently about uh, Floyd Collins' uh, yes. old project from the '90s, which seems to be talked about for a revival. So uh, hopefully, we'll get more. Yeah, more Adam Gettle, more Adam Gettle. So, uh, you know, if Adam Gettle comes back, we'll have him uh, once upon a one more time, won't we? And I believe uh, we've read uh, just quickly that there was there's something else that he has been working on that's um, more or less ready to go. And I, I can't remember what that one, one is. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, more Gettle, um, more more often is something that yeah. I would that I would certainly like. <laughs> so, Peter, you got to the Marquee Theater to see Once Upon a One More Time, also subtext uh uh, subtitled or subtext and subtitled <laughs> the Britney Spears uh, musical. So um, tell us about your experience at Once Upon a One More Time. Well, uh, I, I I don't know Britney Spears from Asparagus Spears. So uh, the music was totally <laughs> new to me uh, with that uh, exception of that Oops song. I heard that just recently in some play. I don't remember what, but anyway, <laughs> um, and it's all set to herky jerky choreography, much in the K-pop style um, moves that are made uh, that look interesting um, and look very hard to learn. But it doesn't seem to have anything to do with um, what people would be feeling at that moment in time, which is always the the best goal of choreography. So, however, I'll tell you, this book starts off pretty good and in a way this is almost um what i expected into the woods would be way back when when i first heard that sondheim and lapine were throwing fairy tale characters together i thought oh this is going to be hilarious well it didn't turn out to be hilarious and this show wants to be hilarious and uh, occasionally is but what we have here is all these fairy Fairy tale princesses, the princess of the pea, um, Rapunzel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They're all thrown together, and they meet and they have a book club. They call it a scroll club because books haven't been invented yet. But nevertheless, they meet, they discuss, and the book they're um, been given uh, by a very strange stranger 
hilariously played by a woman named Brooke Dillman. Um, it turns out to be The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. Now, you wouldn't expect that Betty Friedan would show up in a musical <laughs> involving Britney Spears, but she does, and it's a very important part of the story. And so at the end of the first act, you think, well, you know, this is you know, th- this is a good book. They really bring up a lot of the points about the fact that the way people act in fairy tales is certainly not the way they would act in real life, and uh, that a lot of fairy tale characters take so much for granted without questioning anything. And now here's this book that made a lot of women in the '60s question a lot of things. And what would happen if fairy tale characters get it? Well, that's where we end the first act. It looks like we're going to get a good answer. We don't get a good answer. Um, it's one of those wrap it up in the last four minutes answers. And uh, there's a lot of time killing in between uh, the intermission and that moment when indeed you do find out that um, people have opinions about what they've been reading. So it's sad that you, you, you got your hopes up at the end of the first act that you were seeing something intelligent and uh, and uh, but they just dropped the ball for the longest time and just do Britney Spears numbers. That said, um, I have to say that uh, the cast is really, really terrific. A woman named Briga Helin plays uh, Cinderella terrifically. Adam Godley plays the narrator. Yeah, this is the guy who was the Laban trilogy. You wouldn't think that he'd show up in a commercial musical comedy, but you know, there he is. Um, and of course, <laughs> and course jennifer <laughs> samard i'm telling you who uh when you see you're going to say if they ever make us um a movie anything um a, a commercial about angela lansbury uh she's got to play the part she really does resemble her now and um and it's she has very little singing to do but boy does she have dialogue and it, it is so acid dripped with the way she uh says things. uh it's, it's just amazing so she is really one of our most valuable performers and we're delighted to see her back on stage and um being completely different from the last time we saw her on stage and completely different from what we saw her in disaster and Dolly. I mean, it's just amazing what a chameleon she is. And um, I, I would say, really, uh, if you're on the fence about seeing this show, and I can understand being on the fence of seeing this show, uh, if you need a little prodding, uh, Jennifer Smart, it's a featured performance. Don't think you're going to see her every second. Um, but uh, she really is so wonderful that um, it's, it's, it's a performance to be treasured. Peter, I'm not sure if you were joking, but oops, I did it again as in Anne Juliet. Is that where it is? Yeah. And okay. I think I think I've read that um at least one other song uh uh-huh. is shared by both shows. Yeah, I wouldn't but, be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh and um <clears throat> but I think there's a play that mentions it too. Oh, um, okay. oh Justin Garini, by the way, um plays um Prince Charming, who is so charming. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we we certainly got that concept in Into the Woods as well. You know, I'm, I'm not supposed to be um, sincere. So, um, really, uh, it's it's a smart thing they do with the prince, too. Uh, it's a good book move, I'm telling you. Um, I, I just wish that they had stayed with it. And uh, not just said, well, we got to give the people some Britney Spears song here, whatever the cost may be. And the cost is they're not dealing with their subject matter anymore. Hmm. All right. So that is uh, Once Upon a One More Time at the Marquee. Um, Michael's going to see it this week coming up. So we'll chat about it again next week and uh, we'll take it from there. So Peter and Michael, 
also got uh, over to see uh, Eisenhower, this piece of ground, which we talked about in ex- extensively in last week's interview with John Rubenstein. Uh, so, Peter, why don't you get us started on uh, Eisenhower, this piece of ground? Well, um, if faithful listeners will uh, recall that last week, uh, John Rubenstein was talking about the fact that he's playing Eisenhower at a point in his life where he's retired. It's 1962. He's been out of office almost two years. <clears throat> and there's been a survey of the greatest presidents in the United States, and indeed he finishes 22nd, and he's uh, quite upset about this, feeling that he's getting a bum deal. And um, he starts uh, saying, well, I'm not going to answer uh, this guy, I mean, you don't do that. I'd never address criticism directly, he says, you know. I mean, <laughs> but, um, so, but, you know, there wouldn't be much of a play if that were the case. So, uh, finally decides to turn on his tape recorder and, um, air his grievances. And they're very convincing, very convincing. You know, I stopped the Korean War, you know, uh, <laughs> the H bomb didn't go off. Uh, I did a great deal with NASA, you know, uh, the interstate highways, which really changed, uh, so much for so people. So, uh, but he's accused of just leaving well enough alone, that that's the type of president he was, and he's certainly not going to take that um, lying down. Uh, so it's really something to see John Rubenstein go through this material. It's uh, very, very effective, especially when he starts talking about war and he talks about um, it, what soldiers have to go through in war, of course. Who hates a war more than a soldier who's lived it? And um, I'm telling you, the look in his eyes, uh, you can almost see them watering at that moment in time. So that that's uh, um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, we see why Eisenhower really was a great man. And um, as he says, it's always better to choose the harder right than the easier wrong. Um, like all of us, when there's something he doesn't believe and he knows that he's not going to be able to change it, he comes out with a bitter laugh, with, you know, something that's taken as common knowledge, and it's really not common knowledge at all, but people believe it, and he knows he's above it. But the bitter laugh he gives at that moment in time is uh, great fun. Uh, so so it really is a very effective um, presentation. It is in two acts because, yes, John Rubenstein certainly deserves a break <laughs> halfway through. Um, and um, more than that, you know, I, I, to think that this was a man who didn't expect any of this to happen. I mean, yes, he did apply to West Point and he didn't get in. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, um, he, <laughs> he didn't because they chose one person and one person only uh, from um, his neck of the woods or something like that and so um but you know just as john Lloyd was the second choice for jersey boys and the first choice said no i'm getting a tv series um the first guy didn't um didn't make it so uh, eisenhower got in what a shame that his father didn't live to see his success you know i mean and we're talking success his mother did there's a wonderful line that she gives when she's asked if she's proud of her son, which I'm not going to give away. But uh, I'll tell you, at the end of the show, you really want to vote for Eisenhower, you know? And you and you find out you find out um, where he ranks today, and it's it's pretty impressive. And um, but you know, even though we can't vote for Eisenhower, we certainly can vote for John Rubenstein next year for many awards, and I hope that uh, he's remembered because he should be. He's doing a great job. I wish they. I, I wish they had a Tony campaign where they could give out I like Ike buttons. Yeah, they're they they have them at the theater. The ushers were wearing I like Ike buttons, you know. Uh, <laughs> we we had everything but the song from Call Me Madam. So anyway. <laughs> All right, Michael, what did you think? 
Well, as I've said before, and I, I guess most recently in terms of prima facie, I'm in awe of any actor who can do a one-person show. Um, I suppose that one is even more difficult than this one, but just because of the emotional uh, heights that that you need to reach uh, in prima facie, which is not quite the same thing here. But even something like this, uh, just the sheer memorization and the fact that there is no break and you're constantly talking uh, to the audience in one way or another and no one to play off of. Uh, it, uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, and this is not, this play is not very short. As Peter mentioned, there is a, an intermission, which is much needed. I'm sure. Uh, I thought it was first of all, very well written by Richard Hellison. Um, there's always the, uh, the moment in a, in a one person, uh, show, how do you, how do you establish the, um, the, 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 um, concept the the uh the style that the person is going to be talking to the audience uh and here it's done very seamlessly at the very beginning of the play eisenhower is on the phone with someone um railing about the fact that he's uh that he was only rated number 22 uh out of all the presidents up to that time and thinking that that was unfair um and so that's all on the phone. So there's no there's no uh, problem there with uh, suspension of disbelief. And then uh, he basically goes right into uh, he punches a, uh, a, a, a button on a tape recorder, an old reel to reel tape recorder that's on a desk, and he starts to uh, go on about. Uh, Talk, talk about himself because he's planning to write a book, a memoir. Um, and so that's really very, very, very seamlessly done. Um, and then he gradually starts to um, uh, seem to be addressing the audience more directly uh, as far as eye contact, I guess I would say, uh, and, and facing out and rather than uh, looking off to the side or, or, down or whatever um so all that was very well done and very well directed by peter ellenstein and very 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 well acted by by john rubenstein um it's interesting how these names fit together john rubenstein peter ellenstein richard hellison <laughs> uh, I just noticed that um, there's more set here, by the way, than you will normally see at St. the theater at St. Clement's, which tends to be um, uh to house very uh very low budget uh shows uh but here michael deegan uh has provided a, a very nice unit set um i i thought john was quite amazing in the show he really was great uh completely engaged as he would have to be in a one-person show um and i I basically loved it. I did think the second act uh, to me was more compelling than the first. Um, I thought after the beginning of the first act, um, as the first act proceeded, there was maybe a little too much um, just sort of conversational uh, stuff and, and discussion of things that, that I, that I didn't find especially interesting, just sort of life elements of, uh, of, eisenhower's life but in act two that was certainly not the case there was talk about 
very momentous things and uh i found it very compelling and i did um like the fact that uh when we spoke with john he said there was sort of a spoiler he didn't want to say too much about the ending uh but as peter uh mentioned that we do find uh that in later years that eisenhower uh was rated much higher than that number 22 uh that that we're initially told and i won't i won't say more about that but that I thought was a perfect, perfect ending for the play. And I think you'll be very likely to agree um, when and if you see it. Okay. So uh, I'm going to include in the show notes our interview with with John last week. So you can get back and listen to it if you missed it. And also there's a link to Matt Temanini's uh, discussion with John as well, which was really wonderful. I encourage you to listen to them both. They're uh, tremendously informative and fun to listen to. So that is Eisenhower, this piece of ground. It's playing at the Theater at St. Clement's through July 30th, and we'll have a link to the show in the show notes. So, Michael, uh, we're going to do a quick lightning round (laughs) roundup of like 4,000 things you did this week. (laughs) So uh, we'll start off with uh, Scott Siegel's uh, Broadway by the Season. Uh, That is up. It's in Merkin Hall. Correct. Yes. So Merkin Hall. uh, So Michael, tell us about uh, Broadway by the season. Uh, That was actually not this week. It was the previous, but we didn't get to uh, Uh, talk about it last week because of but because of uh, John Rubenstein as our honored guest. Uh, But yes, um, Scott, for many years at Town Hall, did a series called Broadway by the Year. Um, And... uh, there would be, as it sounds, they would present songs from Broadway shows that were produced during uh, a particular calendar year. And sometimes they would do ranges of years, and sometimes Act 1 would be one year, and Act 2 would be another year. Blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, I think some people at the time asked him, including me, <laughs> um, why he chose to do it by calendar year instead of by season. And I, I don't remember what he said. Uh, um, I, I mean, I suppose it's easier for most people to remember the year in which uh, – a uh, Broadway show is produced and not necessarily remember the season because the way of this, the way that seasons fall. I mean, I'm, I know Peter remembers them all, but I don't. Uh, so, um, so anyway, now it is Broadway by the season at Merkin hall, which is a wonderful hall. If you've never been to it up uh, very just North of Lincoln center. Um, and it's, uh, I think, uh, maybe uh, underused for this type of show. Uh, but so that, so I think it's great that now this series has moved there and hopefully it will continue uh, there. This, this edition um, act one celebrated the 1925, 26 season and act two celebrated the 1930, 31 season um, with Ross Patterson uh at the piano as and as musical director uh and a really great cast um some highlights ben jones did mountain greenery and i found a million dollar baby uh and then he and alex getlin who was in my bernstein show well they were both in my bernstein show um did the hottest version of embraceable you (laughs) that you've ever heard or seen uh they they 
they really just killed with that number. Um, also, that fabulous Moy Pei uh, trio of identical triplets from uh, Kenya. Uh, they did Sweet and Low Down, uh, and they did uh, Take Me Back to Manhattan <laughs> uh, in that, in the second part. Um, William Michaels was there to sing One Alone. Uh, Jenny Lee Stern, Where Has My Hubby Gone Blues? Um, Danny Gardner uh, was there to dance and choreograph with an ensemble of dancers. Um, uh, two big production numbers. I, I want to be happy from No No Nanette and um, Who Cares? Uh, and let's see, who am I living at? Oh, my Michael Winther, uh, Memories of You. Uh, I think that's it as far as all of the people who were in it. It was it was a really terrific night, and I hope it does continue. Um, last night, I got back to see Notre Dame de Paris at the Coke Theater, which I'm rarely in anymore um, since the New York City Opera left it. Uh, but it is that also is a, is a is a nice theater, um, and this is a show that was largely hated by critics uh when it played last summer Globally. yeah but um it has its fans it's just in a, it's written in a style it's called a spectacle or spectacle uh it, it's um i think the reason people here um who are not familiar with that uh, americans um one of the reasons they hate it so much is that it's close enough to the style of a musical that it makes you think it should behave like a musical, but it, it really doesn't. There's a lot of divertissement in it. There's a lot of repetition, a lot of dancing that um, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the story, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it's also a very Euro pop type of score by um, Luc Plamondon and Richard Cochante uh, that, kind of can seem a little relentless as it goes on and on. Uh, but all that said, um, the, the, this show has its huge number of fans all around the world. It's, it's played everywhere, um, including now uh, New York last summer and, and now here again. And in fact, last summer, they played only two weeks, uh, but this summer, it's almost a month at the Coke Theater. Um, and those people were out in force, and they were cheering it and loving it. So there you have it. And I was so great, so glad um, to see it again, especially because this amazing fellow named John Marco Schiaretti is back in the role of Gringoire. And um, uh, I've become friendly with him, and I think um, he's going to be singing at Jim Caruso's cast party in a few weeks because I wanted to I felt like he should be introduced to um to the uh regular musical theater uh audience <laughs> um here in New York. Um uh, he, he's he's done amazing stuff. He played Tarzan um in Europe in German <laughs> and um he's also done a, a few other American musicals over there. So uh he's amazing as you will hopefully learn very soon and i was great really really glad to see him again um then i went uh the other evening on thursday i went uh the met orchestra the metropolitan orchestra under its uh music director yannick neze Segan, 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 excuse me yannick neze Segan, <laughs> <laughs> like jean valjean raymond uh he, uh, they did an, uh, a program, really clever program that was 
uh, I guess, obviously inspired by Shakespeare in a way, because the opening um, piece, which is the main reason I went, was the symphonic dances from West Side Story. And if you have never heard that those played by a symphony orchestra, you have not lived. I mean, it was just phenomenal. The audience was was enraptured. Um, then there was a, a, a contemporary piece by a fellow named Matthew O'Quin, um, who was born in 1990, so very contemporary. Um, and that piece is called Heath, H-E-A-T-H, as in the blasted Heath from King Lear. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, and the movements of that piece are called the divided kingdom, the fool, I have no way, and with a dead march. And it doesn't actually tell the story of King Lear, and there's no text in it. But um, it, it, you could certainly hear how it was inspired by that great, great play. Um, and then the third piece, the finale of the first half, was the beautiful and world-famous Romeo and Juliet Fantasy Overture by Tchaikovsky. Um, And then after the intermission, we got the entire fourth act of Verdi's opera Otello, with Angel Blue as Desdemona, or Desdemona, as it's pronounced in the the opera, and Russell Thomas as Otello, uh, and a few other singers in smaller roles. So that was... um, that was a great night that that caused me to reflect on how many artistic works in all genres have been inspired by Shakespeare. I mean, if you include paintings and operas and musicals and other plays uh, and symphonies, et cetera, et cetera, the list would probably be almost endless. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe somebody should get to work on that, mm-hmm. Peter. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, life, life's hard enough, Michael. Yeah, I know. No, yeah, but, that, but, that would take quite is, a while. <laughs> but your point is well taken, needless to say. Yeah. Um, and then uh, two other things quickly. I saw um, a uh, reading or a workshop of Forbidden Sondheim, uh, Gerard Alessandrini's new uh, effort, and I mentioned that because I think you are likely going to be seeing it uh, fairly soon in one form or another uh, in a uh, you know in a production that's open to the public in New York. Um, so this was uh, mostly made up of Sondheim material that had been featured in the past in Forbidden Broadway, um, uh, uh, with some new material as well, just to spice things up. And it was very, very well done, as you might imagine. The, the, one of the most clever things about it was the subtitle. So it's called Forbidden Sondheim, Merrily We Stole a Song. Ah, good. Yeah. <laughs> and the cast, uh, Dana Jaray Dantzler, Chris Collins Pisano, Christine Petty, Jenny Lee Stern again, uh, and Michael West with Fred Barton at the piano and Gerard um, uh, directing as well as writing all the f- fabulously uh, clever lyrics. Um, so that was really, really fine. And then um, finally, I got to Staten Island to see a production of Bat Boy, the musical. Um, and uh, that was a show I really liked when it played here off Broadway. I I don't know how often it's done elsewhere. I, it doesn't seem to me um, like it's done that frequently. So that's one reason why I went. Um, but also uh, the title role 
uh, was played by Corey Loftus, uh, a friend who was uh, in the ensemble of Guys and Dolls when I did it uh, on Staten Island when I was in Guys and Dolls at the St. George Theater. This was not at the St. George Theater. This was at a smaller theater and actually located in a mall uh, right next to the Staten Island Ferry. Uh, there's an outlet mall there, uh, the Spotlight Repertory Theater Company. And um, uh, boy, it was a revelation to me just as far as Corey. I mean, I knew he was talented. He was a featured dancer in Guys and Dolls, but I never heard him sing solo and he has a magnificent voice and acting wise he was just great um bat boy is a very odd story um aside from everything he uh <laughs> the character whose name whose mind up being winds up being named edgar by uh the woman that we think is his adopted mother um he has to do a British accent <laughs> and he did that perfectly and the singing and the acting was really great and it was quite a strong production overall for for a very very low budget budget um production in this in this black box in a mall on staten island um so i'm glad i went and that's over it was only uh one weekend so that's done you can't get to see that but i i was very pleased to be there okay Quite the week sounds, yeah. uh, sounds a, like a ton of fun. Well, two weeks, you, but yes, yeah. two weeks, and you dodged all the raindrops. Mm. So, okay. So, uh, Peter, you um, saw two shows that uh, dealt with teenage angst. Shall I say it's teenage angst? Or sure, why not? Why not? So, you saw the trouble with dead boyfriends and the gospel according to Heather, and tell us what you thought of these two. Okay, um, the reason I'm mentioning them both together is because uh, one succeeds uh, pretty much on its own terms while one uh, doesn't. And uh, so let's start with The Trouble with Dead Boyfriends, which uh, before the show started, the director got up there and said, this has been seven years in the making. We've been doing it at Carnegie Mellon. And, um, well, you know, the problem with doing is seven years in the making, and I can't prove this, of course, but is the fact that your uh, cast is seven years older. I, I Again, I don't know if this is the original cast from Carnegie Mellon, but I'm assuming it is because everybody looks too old to play teenagers. <laughs> the woman who's playing uh, the head of the, the president of the student council is it won't be long now before she can run for the real president of the United States. You have to be 35. I don't think that's so far away for this lady. So that was a big problem. And of course, it's all about going to who you're going to take to the prom. Now, of course, there was a musical about the prom on Broadway um, a few seasons back, and I thought it was terrific. So again, it taint what you do. Uh, it's the way that you do it. But um but it's all over the top direction. And what we're supposed to do is find it funny because we're supposed to remember when we were that age and weren't we silly. So it's that type of show. The Gospel According to Heather is much more ambitious and much more strange because it is about Heather, who indeed uh, is thought by people in town to have these mystical powers, these supernatural powers, that she may even be the new messiah. So this is heady stuff. Paul Gordon, who um, did book music and lyrics, and uh, um, Paul Gordon, uh, we know from Jane Eyre, certainly, and Daddy Longlegs. So um, 
it's 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 an intelligent show it it goes to show that you don't have to um be silly when you're dealing with teenagers you can really get into heady issues and uh, and do them well and that's what goes on here uh, i'm not saying this is entirely successful uh nevertheless the fact that they're aiming high and they often reach the heights for which they're aiming uh, makes it a worthwhile evening while uh, the Dead Boyfriend show with its vampires and what have you, I'm sorry to say, isn't. Mm. Okay. So that's the trouble with Dead Boyfriends at the Players Theater uh, and the Gospel According to Heather, excuse me, Heather, <laughs> um, which both are uh, wrapping up on July 16th. So I'll have a link to them in the show notes. Peter and Michael, we all got wrapped up in the trance of uh, of uh, John Rubenstein last week, and uh, the interview uh, with John was only supposed to be half the show, but we had such a great time that we ended up making it the full show, and what we did not talk about was if you had any thoughts about the Tony Awards. Uh, yeah. We have we didn't talk about that, and lots of listeners emailed me and said, "Hey, you know, <laughs> where's your Tony Awards tap uh, wrap up?" And I said, "Well, I will ask Peter and Michael <laughs> if they have any thoughts, quick thoughts about that this week." Um, so, Peter, how about you first? What do you have anything oh, to say about the Tony Awards? Uh, yeah, I'm saying what everybody else seems to be saying, and it's a terrible thing for me as a writer to say, but. Um most people, no, all people, seriously, I haven't heard anybody yet. Um, I've talked to maybe 20, 30 people about this. I, everybody felt that the show was one of the best ever, uh, without the patter, uh, without the, the slowing things down with patter or, or extraneous, um, uh, remarks. And so it, uh, it flowed very, very well. So I thought that was terrific. Uh, was I disappointed? Yeah. And Stephen Kinley McCandless and not getting it, uh, mm-hmm. certainly disappointed me. But as a show itself, um, uh, putting those names up there and having people walk out and just start, um, it's terrific. Uh, I, I still don't understand why when you're a presenter, uh, that, uh, after the nominees are read, only then do you open the envelope and pull out the net. We, we open the envelope while they're showing the five nominees, you know, that saves time too. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, aside from that, uh, it certainly is a terrific, terrific, uh, example of what the Tonys can be and certainly were that night. Okay. Michael, how about you? Well, I'd like to point out that I predicted it. Um, I did say on the podcast that it might be one of the best Tonys ever. <laughs> uh, no, I was not the only one. Um, because we should be clear, the problem is not that there is new writing normally in the Tony Awards. The problem is that there's too much of it. Um, I can, I'm sure we can all think of some opening numbers that have been really, really great. Um, I The one that um leaps out of me and today's a perfect day for it is uh, uh that year um when neil patrick harris hosted and the opening number was something like it's not just for gays anymore <laughs> remember mm. that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and today's gay pride day so that's why I, I mentioned that um uh but so that so would would you both agree with that that it's not that it's the writing that's a problem it's that there's just too much of it 
Yeah, uh, I mean, sure, <laughs> which nobody can deny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, there are times when it would have been nice to have something written, and this this um, brings up all kinds of interesting questions. Like, for example, what little Ariana Dubose said ahead of time. Well, didn't she have to write it down? And was she technically like you know breaking the union by doing that? <laughs> Uh, you know, um, sure. Uh, so it, it, it's unfortunate that we even have to think about those things. But one thing I, I think everyone agrees with is that she did a stellar job. I already loved her uh, as a performer uh, from West Side Story, etc. Uh, mm-hmm. But now my opinion of her has even skyrocketed beyond that. Uh, she was so poised and so professional. She said just enough. She didn't say too much. Um, the little selfie thing she did in the audience was charming, I, I, I thought. Uh, and I, I'm so happy for her that she pulled it off so brilliantly. And I hope uh, that it only uh, serves to uh, spur her career further. And I would certainly not mind if she comes back next year and hosts it again. Uh, so I, I think there is general agreement on, on all of that. Uh, what else? I, I thought the uh, memoriam section was done very well, even though it was sung to a, a song from Phantom, which is not my favorite show, but it was sung beautifully by Joaquina Kalukango. Uh, and uh, I, there were several moments where I teared up because I knew several of the people sure. who, who sure. in this case, uh, who had died. Um, and I thought the theater, the United Palace Theater, looked beautiful uh, on camera. <laughs> uh, and I really don't have anything negative to say. Okay. So uh, it uh, did seem from the evening that it was a huge uh, boon for the uh for the telecast, lots of people, as both of you mentioned, really enjoyed it. Uh, oh, and uh, uh, just quickly, um, there was always the the question of how to represent the non-musical nominees. Uh, there have been years in the past where they actually got actors to come out on stage and reenact brief sections of uh, their shows, and I don't think that ever worked at all. Yeah. But um, but I thought what they did this year. Just work beautifully. Just show little B-roll clips, uh, so you get to see the uh, actors performing in in context, even though you don't get the context, uh, and you get get the set and the costumes, and and I thought that made a huge difference, and I thought all of those clips were were very very effective. So I, I hope agree. that's something that they adopt uh, for the future, and they that they keep it. There were some logistical issues up at the theater. Uh, the um, air conditioning didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't which know was, that. Yeah. Which was a which was an issue. Um, there was, uh, you know, some other types of logistical issues. That all of that stuff can get worked out. It's a beautiful theater. I loved having it uh, where it was, uh, and it sort of um, it sort of broke a tradition in in a good way. Uh, got it, getting it out of uh, Midtown Manhattan, um, and to see that you know we all survived 
you know, going north of 96th Street. Mm -hmm. So that is, uh, that's really wonderful. One of the downsides of it was that, um, so the worst TV ratings that we've ever had. So, is that right? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Oh, no, I thought it's, I read that it was up 2% from the last no. one. It, it was, uh, the, the initial impressions were that it was up, but it ended up being oh. Uh, oh. actually a 2% decline. Oh. Um, um, so 4.12 million people watched it. So again, I keep on saying this, I'm, I'm a broken record for the last 10 years. Hmm. Um, you know, the Broadway League has got to figure out a transition plan as to one year CBS is going to say, we're not going to open up our pocketbook and do this anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. and I hope that they get ahead of this plan. Yeah. Or when that day eventually comes, cause it is coming. So, yeah. uh, so they have to figure out how this is going to happen. But I mean, uh, and Juliet got a huge bump from their, uh, from their, um, uh, the presentation that they did on the Tony Awards and uh, Kimberly Akimbo also got a bump from their wins. So, yes. uh, you know, the Tony Awards are doing what the producers want them to do is a national spotlight for these award for the sh uh, showcase for these shows and helping out at the box office. Okay, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to our trivia and a special musical moment, we want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get to us. Uh, you can support Broadway Radio by going to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Broadway Radio, and subscribe to us there. That way you will get our shows earlier than everybody else and support all the work that we do at uh, Broadway Radio for all the different shows that we have. Contact information for Peter, from Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com, uh, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, what do we have in uh, last week's trivia? This immigrant became much better known as a novelist than a playwright, but she did write a play that had an unusual twist. Its title has something to do with a show that at one time was Broadway's longest-running musical. Who she? What's the play? How does it relate to the musical? Well, Russian-born Ayn Rand came to America and wrote a courtroom drama called Night of January 16th in which 12 members of the audience got to play the jury, and both the defendant guilty and not guilty. On the night of January 16th, 1964, Hello, Dolly! began a 2,844 performance run that allowed it to surpass My Fair Lady as Broadway's longest-running musical. Paul Whitty was first for the second week in a row, followed by Michael Wannis, Jack Leshner, Sean Logan, and that was it. This was a tough oh. one. All right, mm -hmm. let's see what happens this week. Another opening, another show in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore goes <laughs> one of musical theater's most famous opening numbers. And yet, not every show had its world premiere opening in one of those cities. What was the first Tony-nominated musical that didn't? What was the first Tony-winning musical that didn't open in Philly, Boston, or Baltimore? Oh, interesting. Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. 
So, Michael, tell us about our musical moment this week. Oh, yes. Well, um, we lost Sheldon Harnick at age 99, one of the true greats of the American musical theater. And uh, we were privileged to have him on our podcast in 2012. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, So we obviously wanted to tribute him and the musical moments um and so 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 much to choose from uh but i landed on uh two special things i i hope the opener is julie andrews singing dear friend from she loves me uh as we've discussed in the past there was talk there were plans in the mid 60s for a film version of she loves me to star Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke would have reunited them from Mary Poppins, obviously. And unfortunately, that didn't happen because um, a lot of other flop movie musicals got in the way. Uh, And so talk about your missed opportunity. That's one of the greatest of all time, certainly in the musical theater and film field, as far as I'm concerned. Um, But uh, Julie did record a single remember singles uh, uh with <laughs> dear friend uh on one side and the title song uh she loves me but rejiggered as he loves me on the other side and it's really delightful you can hear both um on youtube but our opener uh as our opener i chose dear friend absolutely beautiful her um, you know, her voice was so pure and, and gorgeous back then. And that song is perfection as written by Sheldon Harnick and Jerry Bach. Um, so I, I think it's, um, quite a lovely, lovely recording. And, um, for our closer, we're going to give you <laughs> Alice Ghostly singing the Boston Begin which was an early effort um, by Mr. Harnick and uh, significantly uh, a song for which he wrote both the music and the lyrics. Uh, So that makes that special. Uh, Hilarious song. uh, Take off on, I guess, Begin the Begin and and other Begin songs, (laughs) uh, famous Begin songs, um, but all about Boston, uh, you know, with all the references that you'd want to be in there. Um, Oh, and I also found uh, a video of Alice ghostly performing the number because there was a film of that show, uh, new faces of 1952. Um, So you get both um, uh, from us this week. (laughs) And it's, uh, it's a great, great, great performance. Um, Sheldon was a true mensch. Uh, Many people have used that word. Um, in, in the past week, uh, in addition to his great talent, and he gave us, he brought so much beauty into the world, uh, and so we really will miss him. And he, he was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man. All right. So, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye bye. 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 I met him in Boston, in the native quarter. He was from Harvard, just across the border. It was a magical night with romance everywhere. 
was something in the air There always is in Boston We went to the Casbah That's an Irish bar there The underground hideout Of the D.A.R. there Something inside of me said Watch your heart, mademoiselle And it might be just as well To watch your purse in Boston We danced in a trance And I dreamed of romance Till the strings of my heart Seemed to be knotted And even the palms Seemed to be parted The Boston begin Was casting its spell And I was drunk with love And cheap muscatel We went to the common That's a pretty park there As I remember It was pretty dark there In this exotic locale By a silver lagoon Underneath a voodoo moon We fell asleep in Boston That was the story Of my one romance there Our dream of adventure Didn't stand a chance there How could we hope to enjoy All the pleasures ahead When the books we should have read What a surprise In Boston Exotic Boston Land of the free 